arrival was almost unspeakable. We are all evil in some form or another. I'm not guilty. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. If I couldn't keep them there with me whole, I, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast, friends. I'm Janelle. I am Vicky. And we are here for a very interesting episode. <laughs> I don't know what kind of accent this is. Um, I mean, I'm accidentally falling can... into a Dutch accent, so... <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh my god. I, uh, I got so excited that I became Dutch. <laughs> oh, I got too excited. By the way, Vicky, yes. happy Easter. Happy Easter. I hope you're enjoying some chocolate and some marshmallowy things and, I don't know, ham, lamb, spring yeah. veg, whatever you guys family. do. <laughs> We always family. Do. Yeah, it seems like our Easter dinner, my mom really gets into Easter dinner, so we do ham mm-hmm. and cheesy potatoes normally. Very nice. And mm-hmm. this uh, very, very Midwestern type of salad that we call mm-hmm. orange stuff. It's a salad, but oh, is it like ambrosia salad? It's probably. It's like... Cool Whip and Mandarin Oranges and cottage cheese and... We don't put cottage cheese in ours, but yes. I think it's cottage (laughs) cheese. Yeah. And, you know, it's like that kind of salad. And... um, Uh Uh-huh. Jello salad. Yeah. It's kind of like... it's Yeah. Jello salads. I feel like that's a very Midwestern-y kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We usually go between... Because I have a very Italian side of my family and then I have everybody else. So traditionally, <laughs> when we do our super Italian side of the family, we eat like a, a brunch and we have Easter pie. Everything's very vegetarian with some seafood when we do the Italian side. When we're with Ooh. everybody else, we do ham and lamb, sometimes a prime rib. And then again, we still have the Easter pie, which is cheese, spinach and eggs inside of like a, a puff pastry. It's very delicious. Yeah. That's what I, I eat. <laughs> I just had a thought. I feel like we normally do, um, sometimes we do French toast casserole. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, oh there it's we go. so good. It's so mm-hmm. good. Holiday food is delicious. Now that we've made you hungry. <laughs> I'm so, I'm starving. We're coming up on, I, we got an, maybe another hour or two before lunch, but I'm already pretty hungry. <laughs> well, when you're up at the crack of dawn. <laughs> yeah. And Janelle just watched me eat piece of coffee cake i just scarfed a piece of coffee really yeah i don't really know what you were eating i just know that you were eating yeah it was like a pecan coffee cake it was really delicious anyway we're gonna move on (laughs) why don't we this isn't the bad taste cast i know (laughs) it's really good oh god all right well let's go to the newsroom So this week, our our news comes from the New York Post, and I have to, I have to read you this headline. It's just too good. (laughs) It's too good. Gourmet gangsters pilfer pounds of pasta from Brooklyn Eatery. 
I mean, that's my kind of burglary. <laughs> I love the alliteration in that. And then literally mm-hmm. the opening sentence to this article, they're in hot water. <laughs> <laughs> Boiling, salted <Yeah>. hot water. <laughs> So this actually happened back in December uh, 2020, December 23rd, at a restaurant in Brooklyn called Borsalia. Um, some thieves cut into the lock in the front door. They broke into the restaurant. They went right for the storage area. And then they broke a hole through the wall that led to a refrigerator area that held their prize, which was pasta. <laughs> the, the thieves stole 10 to 15 pounds of pasta, including gnocchi, Ta- tagliatelle, ravioli, fusilli, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. capoletti. Very nice. It is estimated <laughs> that pasta was enough for 150 meals and was valued at about $4,500. Interestingly enough, they left all the other big ticket items, including like val- valuable electronics. There was like iPads in the restaurant, all the liquor bottles, mm-hmm. like all that stuff was left. They only took another $40 from a cash box. I mean, people are starving, guys. They're going to get what they want, which is food. <laughs> yeah. And even the owner, the owner of the restaurant was like, it could be worse. Like, they could have taken all of this expensive yeah. shit, but really, we just have to spend a couple nights making, like, busting our ass to make more pasta, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, people I are mean, hungry. Exactly. I wouldn't be too sad if somebody stole pasta. Nope. I mean, if they stole my fresh mozzarella, though, <laughs> it's over. <laughs> I will also say again, this happened on December 23rd. So this was the day before Christmas Eve, um, mm-hmm. which kind of Which sucks, if you're an, an Italian, if you're Italian, you eat, you do Christmas Eve dinner. So they're preparing. <laughs> so we're going to move on to Netflix and Kill last week we had said we were going to talk or not last week last episode we said we were going to talk about (laughs) murder among mormons and we're going to talk about this week more like boring among mormons (laughs) i i will start off i normally start off by giving my take i liked it i don't think janelle did Mm -hmm. no it was really fucking boring it could have been an hour-long like movie and that was it it was way too drawn out Nah, I thought it was very interesting. It I was like, uh, so first of all, what are we talking about? <laughs> Let me give you a little <laughs> a documentary TLD on Netflix. <laughs> yes. So the series looks at a string of bombings that happened in October 1985 in Salt Lake City, Utah. At this time, obviously, Utah is a where all of the Mormons and the LDS Church has <laughs> <They> settled. Mormon. <laughs> At this time, there were quite a few Mormon documents being found and bought and sold to the church through various dealers and collectors. A man named Mark Hoffman was really at the forefront of specifically Mormon document collecting and discovery, finding things like the White Salamander letter, which sort of threw into question some of these more fundamental beliefs in the Latter-day Saints Things really kicked off after the discovery of the McClellan Collection, which was another series of letters from Joseph Smith's wife, which had claims to potentially damaging 
the LDS church. Now, shortly before these letters were said to exchange hands, a number of bombs went off, killing a few people involved in this particular deal, including Stephen Christensen, who was a Mormon bishop and a document collector, and Kathleen Sheets, who was the wife of one of Hoffman's associates. There's a third bomb that went off in Hoffman's car, causing severe injuries. And I'm going to leave it at that because I feel like it's more interesting if you don't know the rest of it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the story is interesting, but the way that they filmed it is what bored me to death. Mormons are boring. When they talk, they are. it is like the most monotone, like, are you going to get to a point? Like, I just couldn't concentrate because... First of all, some of those dudes look real interesting. We'll just put it that way. <laughs> some of the people they interviewed were very hard to look at. <laughs> You're so mean, Janelle. I'm sorry. They looked like <laughs> 1920s cartoon characters. I was oh just like, God. what is in the water in Salt Lake, Utah? But I mean, they're Mormons. So I came into it being like, I've encountered many a Mormon in my life. And yeah. I wanted to walk away from each and every conversation <laughs> because it was yeah. just, I don't know what it is, but the way in which they, like a lot of Mormons that I've met and then the people on this documentary, they speak in this very monotone, quiet, sheepish way that instantly makes me want to fall asleep. It's like, <laughs> it's so, it's just so like calm and quiet so- and like- I'll tell you <laughs> that I liked it because of how it was put together. It actually reminded me a lot of like Wild Wild Country or Evil Genius, where they use this combination of archival footage from mm-hmm. the investigations and some reenactments. Like there was the reenactment with the dude and Hoffman, like his best friend and Hoffman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like driving in the fast car and getting out with the Uzi, like shooting the back boxes of like some house out in the middle of nowhere, Utah, right? I there can't. was that little reenactment in there that was like this. I don't know. <sighs> the other part that was like really weird to me was when the guy who the inter- they interviewed the guy who came across Hoffman after the bomb exploded in his car mm-hmm. and him talking about he's like, I knew he was a Mormon because his undergarments were showing. And so I brought out my pocket anointing oil and I was like, I literally can't listen to us right now. <laughs> like, yeah, but that's a thing. That's I commanded thing. him to live. I commanded him to live. And I was like, oh. The LDS has I took some, a break right there. <laughs> LDS has some really interesting practices. And I think the thing I'm I always have an interest in religion, right? I am mm-hmm. naturally drawn to these things because I just find the practices of some of these organizations really fascinating absurd. and strange <laughs> and absurd. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And you want to understand it a little bit. So LDS is kind of a definitely lands in the stranger. They are really weird. Yeah. I really, like, Mormonism is so, it's almost Scientology. It's almost one step above aliens. Like, it's it's so close that I'm just like, you guys are real kooky. Like, real kooky, but real conservative. I don't get the mixture. (laughs) Yeah, with the whole Joseph Smith angels gold plates thing. That's like... It's just... Um, the, the undergarments, the practices that mm-hmm. they do before and during marriage ceremonies, it's, it's, it's very, it's otherworldly. It's very 
like kooky. I'm just, mm-hmm. It's almost like people are making fun of religion, but they're super serious about it. Right. <laughs> it almost yeah. is a joke. Yeah. So the nice thing about the series is it for a series, it was only three episodes. Mm-hmm. Nice and short. I, honestly, it could, it could have been shorter. Lies. <laughs> been shorter. I think three episodes was shorter. five. Janelle and I That's do not always agree on everything. <laughs> I just like, okay, there's storytelling and then there's just putting more content in so that you can get more views. And I feel like a lot of the Netflix documentaries are starting to tend towards that point where it's like, well, we want to draw people into this and, and get a little bit more content hours out of it. So we're just going to chop it up and make it longer and add some unnecessary things in there. I I like more like the HBO documentary series where they're very like, this is an hour, we're getting to the point. And the ones that they do draw out where they have multi-series, those are stories that are super duper complex that you couldn't tell in one hour. I feel like this story was, it's very interesting, but it's just, I don't think it has enough content to it to really be that long. No, I absolutely disagree. I think for a series, like, the fact that they did a series in three episodes instead of in six, as there's definitely some series on Netflix that are doing that. This particular one, Mm -hmm. I feel like having to have all of this backstory about the church and about the sort of document collecting world provides a lot of context for the things that were happening. And it totally deserved three episodes which is so interesting that we we picked two things that were about forgery (laughs) Mm -hmm. in the last couple i know you can tell what i've been watching recently (laughs) yeah and i've worked like i worked in a bookstore where we where i was part of the group of people that did the comic books and the rare um older books and there are people who do try to bring in things and you're just like this is this is nothing, ma'am. I know you think it's something because you think this is an autograph, but it's not. Like, you yeah. Know, like, yeah. There is a lot, there's a lot of fraud in that aspect. And again, that's another area where people kind of dictate the market a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, like people's opinions on certain authors and certain things. It's, it's right. very much like the art world. Right. Yeah. I agree. To that point, I agree. So if you want to settle this dispute, maybe you should check it out and let us know what you think. (laughs) It's Murder Among Mormons. It's on Netflix right now. Won't take you very long, but, you know, at least watch one episode. Then you can decide if you want to continue. Really, the second one is where it picks up, but, you know, (laughs) you need the base of the first. It's all great. (laughs) I didn't say it was bad. I just said it was unnecessarily long. (laughs) Uh, so this is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. Uh, we'll be talking about instances of murder and rape and... I don't have any of that. I do. <laughs> Might be a little Wait rough a on that. <laughs> so if you're not into that, you maybe know, skip this one. But Yeah. Vicky's got to bring it down after after my interesting light story. I'm going to bring it down and bring it back up again. It's fine. Okay. It'll be fine, as guys. As we have a high note at the end. <laughs> sort of. It's kind of a high note. Okay. <laughs> well, it's Easter, y'all. So I thought that I would kind of take us into an interesting phenomenon that happens. There is a tradition in Norway around Easter time to read true crime stories, which they call Pascha Krims. And 
This is like what they do after they have their Easter dinner. They all just go and enjoy a true crime story, which is my kind of tradition. I had no idea. No idea this was yeah. a thing. It seems like it would be, <laughs> but... Norway's <sighs> interesting. They, they're really the birthplace of the true crime genre, to be perfectly honest. They, in our in a modern sense... Mm-hmm. All of the good shows that we've had have come out of mostly Norway and, you know, takes and spins yeah. on Norwegian yeah, shows. Yeah, that's true. Also, you know, also spins on British shows, too. Right. But Norway really has the market cornered. They have a lot of really amazing authors. And it all kind of started in 1932 when author Nordal Grieg and Nilis Ley engaged in their own unique brand of guerrilla marketing for their book about a train robbery that took place on Easter. Now, instead of posting a conventional ad in the newspaper, they decided to publish an excerpt from the book on the front page completely out of context. So it appeared to be real. Now, for whatever reason, this work of pure fiction ended up looking like an actual news article, and people became freaked out. And this <laughs> was what became the Pasca Krim tradition. And everybody started to want to read more true crime around Easter as kind of like a nod to this. It was very like when the War of the Worlds kind of I was um, just thinking, radio it's show. Very like Orson Welles. Of- yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was very much like that. And so eventually the story came out that it was not a real story. And so this people were like, oh, we were fooled. Amazing. So people were very excited. So I decided to tell a very traditional true crime Norwegian story. And this is about the disappearance of Anne Elizabeth Folkevik Hagen. Anne Elizabeth Folkevik married Tom Hagen in 1979 when they were both 19 years old. Hagen co-founded the electric company Elk Craft in 1992 and was a millionaire. Oh, nice. Yes. The couple lived in Fjellhama, which is a village about 12 miles outside of Oslo, Norway. Anne Elizabeth was shy and didn't really venture out much. She was very quiet and she liked her life that way to be. And their life was relatively quiet until 2018. The 68-year-old Anne vanished from her suburban home on October 31st, 2018. The evidence was scant and it was really sketchy from the jump. There was a shoe print a few bloodstains, and on the couple's bed, a poorly written but highly detailed ransom note. Now, this ransom note asked for $9.5 million to be paid in an obscure cryptocurrency called Monero. Have you ever heard of Monero? I've never heard of Monero. Uh, no, I don't think so. There was a podcast called Crypto Queen about a woman who started her own like crypt- like cryptocurrency <laughs> that was a scam. But I don't remember if it was yeah. called that. Yeah, there's quite a, there's a couple cryptocurrencies, and the only thing that I really know about is like you know Bitcoin and Dogecoin. But yeah, maybe this is a specifically European cryptocurrency. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, her husband Tom was one of the richest men in the country, so things like this, you know, it wouldn't be too crazy for somebody to take a millionaire's wife hostage. But the manner in which she disappeared and the note left a lot of questions. Now, the police questioned Tom, but they felt something was a little off. So on January 16th, the family received a new message from the person or people who claimed to have kidnapped Anne Elizabeth. And this message was received through the cryptocurrency website Bitcoin this time. 
Okay. And then on January 27th, the family again was in communication with the alleged kidnappers through the cryptocurrency website. Now, police initially kept mom about her disappearance, fearing for her safety, and they only went public with the case in the end of January of 2019. Now, remember, she was kidnapped in October. But the authorities were really skeptical since the supposed abductors used a method of digital communication that made it impossible to actually contact them to negotiate. So there was no way for him to contact them back when he was like, I got your money. Yeah. Okay. So. Huh. In May, the family decides to attempt to try to contact the alleged kidnappers themselves. They didn't receive any evidence of Anne Elizabeth's well-being, and nothing else was coming from the kidnappers. Now, this is a excerpt from an article. There was no kidnapping, no, no real negotiating counterpart or real negotiations. There are indications of a will to sidetrack detectives. Police eventually released security videos of men walking back and forth outside of Hagen's workplace. Officers and police dogs were also seen scouring the grounds around the couple's home, and divers went into a nearby pond as police led large investigations at home and abroad. As the case initially appeared, our main theory was that Anne Elizabeth Hagen had been abducted by someone with a financial motive. So they're saying, basically, that they did have a couple people walking around outside of Tom Hagen's workplace, but they don't have any evidence of anyone coming to their home. There's no evidence that people are actually trying to obtain money for her abduction. They haven't provided evidence that she was alive. So this doesn't really sound like it's a kidnapping. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of lot of stuff that's very sus right now. Exactly. In June of 2019, police came to believe that she had most likely been killed. Police also controversially kept the case under wraps until finally resorting to a public announcement of the alleged kidnapping at a press conference later that year. Oh. Now, it wasn't until April of 2020 that police believed that they had enough info to arrest someone in this case. And that someone would be the husband, Tom Hagen. Hagen's car was stopped by police around 8.30 a.m. as he drove from his home on his way to work. It remained unclear why police chose to act all of a sudden and why they decided to stop him on his way to work. According to reports, the police were entering a, quote, new intensive phase of a, quote, demanding investigation that was at a very early stage. Okay. There's a lot of quotes in this newspaper article, almost unnecessarily so. Yeah. And then add a collective picture of the evidence led to Hagen's arrest, that the police wanted to question him further, and that several searches were already underway of his properties to secure more evidence. Oh, shit. So they decided that, you know, he didn't seem like he was really upset about it. Yeah. He half-assed attempted to contact the quote-unquote kidnappers. Yeah. He didn't tell police until January. Like, Yeah, so like nothing was happening. Police prosecutor Asse Kusted Eriksson, I hope I said that right, said at, a press con- <laughs> said at a press conference that the police were now entering this new intensive demanding investigation because they were getting a lot of flack from the public because they came out and they were like, you know, all of this stuff is happening. This woman's missing. We don't know where the kidnappers are. We can't get in contact with them. They want some sort of fucking digital currency. 
So people were like, you need to get your shit together. So they were like putting together a team and they were working 24 hours a day trying to get this, you know, going. Yeah. The prosecutor also indicated that there may be more arrests of possible accomplices and that they were still looking for Anne Elizabeth Hagen, presumably her body or remains. And they were trying really, really hard to find because they were like, she's dead. They wanted to find her body. Yeah. In police reports, it was cited that his wife, Anne Elizabeth, was listed as a board member of several of his companies and as a substitute member of the board until a month before her disappearance in 2018. So this effectively means that if he were to step down, she could take over control of the company. Now, they worked out a little bit of a timeline in in this investigation, and this was published. So I'm going to read through what they kind of put together, and you can kind of determine – (laughs) what the hell is going on in the end of july 2018 doggins nosklev which is the (laughs) this weird newspaper published an article about tom hagen and how he had earned 174 million and okay the previous year which is their currency police theorized that this might have been what kick-started the whole operation on october 31st tom hagen leaves for work around 9 a.m he arrives to his work around 10 to 15 minutes later. At 9.14 a.m., Anne Elizabeth has a phone conversation with a family member. Early reports said this conversation was with her husband, Tom, but Norwegian media has since changed this to a family member. I'm not sure why this is the case. Yeah. Even if the phone conversation was to Tom, I mean, he had just arrived at work. So Yeah. At this time, during the phone conversation, Anne Elizabeth was alone in their home with their dog. Okay. A short while later, at 9.48 a.m., an electrician and neighbor, Tommy Sconson, calls Anne Elizabeth's cell phone. A few weeks earlier, she had asked him to switch out some light fixtures in her kitchen, and he was calling about this job. She did not pick up. He found it odd that she didn't answer and that it was really unlike her. Throughout the day, more people tried to call her, but the last one who had heard from her was that 9, 9.14 a.m. phone call. Um, Again unclear if it was tom or a family member he never confirmed it and i couldn't find any other reports of it mm-hmm. at 1 30 p.m tom hagen arrives home from work earlier than usual he immediately notices something is off just inside the door there are numerous of Anne elizabeth's belongings lying on a chair there is also a long letter written in broken norwegian on the floor he finds cable ties the puppy is found locked up in a room There is a ransom note demanding 9 million euros in cryptocurrency Monero. If he doesn't pay up, a video of his wife being killed will be posted online. The ransom note also says the family is being watched and his wife's life is in danger should he contact the police. There are no instructions on how to buy Monero included in the letter. At 2.07 p.m., Tom Tom Hagen contacts the police in spite of the threats of the ransom note, and the police meet with him secretly in a gas station shortly after. This case is actually still open, and Tom Hagen is still under investigation, and he's still technically charged in the crime. In August of 2020, the newspaper VG and the Norwegian Broadcasting Network wrote that a relative of Tom Hagen is accused of having tried to influence a key witness in this case. Mm. The man's lawyer confirmed the accusation, but the police did not want to comment on the case at this time. This is what they wrote in the newspaper. I can confirm that we have received a report and that we will soon end the investigation that concerns the influencing of a witness in this case. One person is charged in this case. So 
Both Tom Hagen's defense attorney and family have stressed his lack of digital competency and questions how he could have masterminded an abduction involving it. Police, however, believe Hagen planned his wife's murder over a lengthy period and then tried to cover it up through a staged kidnapping. The police dropped the murder charge in May of this year, but he is still being investigated for his part in the disappearance of his wife. And they are almost certain that she is dead because they have found absolutely no evidence of her anywhere. Yeah. So this, like I said, this case is still ongoing and open. I haven't found any additional information since May that, you know, when they dropped the the charges. So it's still ongoing this year. I've been kind of keeping an eye out. Yeah. But I have a feeling that they're really not going to figure out whatever happened to her. That's really interesting. Because I wonder... It definitely sounds like there's a group of people involved, though. I wonder if they have... Like, there's part of me that feels like if you're dealing with that much money, like if you're a person that in any way, shape, or form is like worth that amount of money or handling that amount of money, you would have... You'd be more likely to have security cameras and stuff around your house. See, or that's what I thought like too. At your, especially if it's if you're doing this in the course of your business, like the the place of business would have more security cameras. So, you know, the timeline that they set out about him like arriving to work and there were security cameras outside of his work, but nothing around his home or neighborhood, okay. which is surprising because I feel like there's a lot of European countries who have a lot of like CCTV everywhere, but mm-hmm. they lived in a suburb outside of Oslo, so. Okay. Maybe that's why they moved out there. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. I just am like... But, yeah. It's it's a very interesting story, but it's very confusing. Mm-hmm. Because when I, when I was going through all the newspaper articles, there wasn't a whole lot of information about her initial d- disappearance because they had kept everything so quiet. So everything I was coming across was articles about him being arrested and then kind of giving a little bit of information. Yeah. Even in the press conference they gave... It was still so vague and so, like, what the hell is going on? Um, You just knew a woman disappeared, and that was about it. So, you know, she's still considered missing. They haven't tried to, you know, in the United States, sometimes they try to get somebody deemed dead so that they can, like, proceed with a different direction. Right. They're still proceeding with it as a disappearance case of the possibility of murder. It's it's very interesting. But they... they I don't know how they actually got him and, like, arrested him for murder. And it was another charge that was something like, you know, lying to the police. Mm-hmm. But they held him for a while. And then they finally, like, changed it. They dropped the murder and changed it to um, aiding and abetting, basically, in a person's kidnapping. So it's a gotcha. very weird story. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's, that's pretty wild. Okay, so <laughs> I'm convinced that you hate me a little bit. What? Because <laughs> I knew there was going to be some Norwegian names in here, and I was going to have a hell of a time <laughs> pronouncing these things. You did great. I mean, I'm going to do terrible. I just w- had confidence and just went... <laughs> <laughs> I always start with confidence, and then it dwindles out by the time I get to the end of a name. <laughs> <laughs> it's because I watched a lot of Lily Hammer. <laughs> yeah. The first Netflix original. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to talk about a man named Fritz Moen. 
So Mon was born in 1941 in Sarpsborg, Norway, to a seamstress and a German soldier. His father died on the battlefield in 1944, and his mother later remarried. Now, after realizing she would be unable to care and provide for her child, Moen's mother sent him to an orphanage where he would spend his childhood. He grew up in, like, moving from various orphanages around. I'll also say, from the day he was born, Moen was deaf, and he later in life would get into a moped accident that would paralyze his right arm. This is going to wow. be extremely <laughs> relevant later. <laughs> okay, okay. And that's about all the background I could find on him. We're going to mm-hmm. take a big jump forward to 1977 when a 20-year-old woman named Torin Finstad went missing in Trondheim just north of Oslo. Four days after she went missing, Finstad's body was found and was determined to have been raped and strangled. Just a day later, Fritz Moen was arrested in connection with the investigation, although he was able to provide an alibi. The evening that Finstad had disappeared, Moen had been at a friend's birthday party with multiple witnesses there. Once he had arrived at the party, he didn't leave until the party ended in the very early hours of the morning. And so... Police went, questioned every witness that was named to confirm the alibi, which all of them did. They were all like, yeah, he was here. We were partying till like 4 a.m. Like, there's no way. But even with that, police refused to believe that the alibi was accurate. So they again brought Moen in for questioning multiple times over the following weeks, subjecting him to intense and oftentimes lengthy sessions Eventually, under the pressure from law enforcement, Moen began giving conflicting statements about what happened the evening that Finstad disappeared. Now, one thing was consistent, and that's how inconsistent his statements were with the evidence that they had collected so far about the disappearance. Mm -hmm. There wasn't actually any physical evidence that connected Moen to the crime. There were no witnesses to his involvement. But nevertheless, he continued to be suspect number one. Now, in an article written by Hans Schur for uh, the magazine Justice Denied, which a lot of my research came from this, this article, he points at the media as well for influencing Moen's statements to the police, saying, quote, the accurate details that Moen did provide were included in newspaper articles that he was known to have read. After participating in a crime scene reconstruction where Finstad's body was found, he was able to provide several accurate details about the area, but a number were still correct. Hmm. So they were like, if he happened to get something right, they would publish that in the newspapers. He would read the newspaper and then he would... It would like reinforce that as a thing that he would then say during the reconstruction. Hmm. Police continued interrogating Moen, communicating with the help of an interpreter. That was like one of the things that he had to have during all of these interrogations. They did eventually indict him for Torn Finstad's murder based solely on what they considered confessions. And the jury would also rely on these statements when the case went to trial. And in 1978, They found Moen guilty of rape and murder, sentencing him to 20 years imprisonment with up to 10 years of post-release supervision. Moen appealed his conviction, which was upheld, although his sentence was reduced to 16 years. 
While in prison and while his his attorney continued to work on overturning his conviction, police began to suspect Moen of involvement in another strangulation death and attempted rape of 20-year-old Sigrid Hegheim, who was found near where Finsad's body had been found. Hmm. Hmm. Now, again, police subjected Moen to repeated questioning, saying that he had confessed to the rape and murder during the seventh interrogation session. Conveniently, this was the only session that Moen didn't have an interpreter present. Of course. I thought you were going to say the only one that wasn't actually recorded. (laughs) Yeah, no. He didn't even have an interpreter present. So I I can't imagine. I I was just like, really, guys? Now, Moen attempted to recant these statements, saying that he had been coerced by police, but authorities used these statements again to charge Moen with attempted rape and murder for Hagheim's death. Again, there was no physical evidence or witnesses that connected Moen to the crime. He was found guilty and sentenced to five years imprisonment to be served consecutive with his existing sentence. His attorney appealed the sentence as well, but the appeal was denied. So Moen Mm. served 18 years in prison. He was released in March 1996. And this whole time, he continued to proclaim his innocence, but was, again, from Hans Schur's article, quote, considered enough of a continuing threat that in October 1999, a district district court judge authorized his supervision for an additional five years. Now, enter a man named Tor Sandberg, a private investigator who was known for his role in the exoneration of Per Lilland, which is another big exoneration case in Norway. Mm-hmm. Sandberg agreed to work on Moen's case pro bono after realizing the judge on the case was Carl Soldberg. Now, Judge Solberg had heard the trial for a man named Adel Haig, who was wrongfully convicted of sexually abusing his son and daughter and later committed suicide. Wowzers. Okay. So the same judge that presided over that case also sat over Moen's. Mm-hmm. So Sandberg spent the next year looking into Moen's convictions, including the investigation materials and interrogation materials, working in part with attorney John Christian Eldon, who would take over as Moen's attorney. Solberg found that although blood and semen had been collected in the investigation and after testing, neither connected Moen to the crime scene. They did like the blood typing was available Mm -hmm. at that time and the blood type did not match at all. Prosecutors actually sought to downplay this evidence, questioning the accuracy of the testing during trial. This evidence was mysteriously destroyed by the time Moen's investigative team tried to obtain it. Hmm. Sandberg was also able to get the forensic expert to confirm that the, uh, and this was a forensic expert that did the autopsy, on Hagheim. So he confirmed that the semen found in Hagheim's case had to have come from her attacker, effectively excluding mm-hmm. Moen as her attacker, because the prosecution at the time of trial was trying to say, well, she could have had sex with her boyfriend before the attack happened, and that's where the semen mm-hmm. would have come from. And this forensic expert essentially said, 
no, that's not. There's no way it could have happened like that. In 2000, Eldon filed a petition to have both of Moen's murder convictions reopened based on, quote, Sandberg's uh, investigation that exposed irregularity in Moen's confessions and the police investigation, exculpatory biological evidence, and the prosecution's failure to disclose favorable witness statements in both cases to Moen's trial attorney, end quote. The petition was opposed by the prosecution and eventually dismissed, but the petition was then appealed to the Supreme Court's Appeals Committee. In October 2003, they announced that due to significant indications that Moen was not the source of the semen, the Hagheim case should be reopened, although they decided not to reopen the Finstad case. One year later, in October 2004, Moen was acquitted of the attempted rape and murder of Hagheim. Now, in this time, Norway established a Norwegian Criminal Case Review Commission, the CCRC, to look at some of these questionable convictions. Just after being acquitted of Hagheim's murder, Moen petitioned the CCRC to investigate the Finstad case, and Eldon continued to represent Moen in this petition. But unfortunately, Moen passed away at the age of 63 in 2005, while Hmm. the CCRC was like still in the process of considering his petition. Moen was survived by his half-brother, who asked the CCRC to continue considering his petition, which they did. And months after Moen's death, things get, well, things get pretty interesting. (laughs) Uh, In December 2005, a man named Tor Hespo confessed to three nurses that he had murdered two women. Now, Hespo was in (laughs) hospital and his health was failing. So the nurses uh, called a priest along with uh, there were two police officers and somebody like an investigator were also there. And he repeated the same statement and the same confession. So in his confession, Hespo specifically named Finstad and Hagheim, along with the mention that Moen had been convicted of both murders. At the age of 67, Hespo died the day after making these confessions. And the CCRC decided that since they were already looking into Moen's case, that they might as well look at the veracity of these claims as well, since they were already doing the work, right? Mm -hmm. So during their investigation, the CCRC found that Hespo, who was in his 30s at the time of the murders, was a heavy drinker that had some mental health issues through most of his adult life, spending time in mental health facilities before and after the murders occurred. Hesfeld also had a history of violence against his partners, in some instances raping the women that he was dating. Hmm. In June 2006, the CCRC delivered its decision on Moen's case to the Court of Appeals, saying, based on their investigation into Moen's confessions, Hespo's confessions, along with the police investigation of the case, they decided to accept the petition to reopen the case, and it was referred to the Court of Appeals. Two months later, the Court of Appeals posthumously acquitted Moen of Finstad's murder. And two weeks after that decision, and really in response to like the 
public outcry surrounding this case, Norway appointed an independent commission to look into why Moen was wrongfully convicted and if there were changes that needed to be made to avoid another wrongful conviction in their future. At this point in time, this this was like they've seen like Norway has watched this happen in other parts of the world, like in the United States, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> happens here a lot. And so this was kind of a big deal because up until this point, they really have not had a miscarriage of justice this size before. So they immediately put a commission into place and the commission found three key things that contributed to Moen's false convictions. Quote, the police and persecutions did not objectively consider the evidence the prosecution's expert witness was not thorough in his examination of the evidence, and he wasn't objective in his evaluation of the meaning of the evidence. And neither the prosecution nor the trial court abided by the principle that a person is considered innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Hmm. All reasonable things, I would say. Under Norway's Criminal Procedure Act, Eldon filed an application for compensation on behalf of Moen. Moen would posthumously be awarded a sum of $4 million, which is the largest wrongful conviction compensation in Norway's history. In regards to the award, the justice minister said, quote, I will tender an unqualified apology and regret in regard to Fritz Moen and those who were close to him for the injustice he was subjected to. There is no forgiving for so much suffering and injustice as Fritz Moen was subjected to. This must be avoided in the future. End quote. Before his death, Moen specified two charities to be the beneficiaries of any compensation awarded to him as a result of his wrongful convictions, which I thought I read that was like smart. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Very smart. So the $4 million was split between the Conrad Svensson Center, which is an organization that operates uh, homes and cares for deaf and blind adults, and the Signo Foundation that sponsors programs that aid the deaf. So, I mean, kind of ended on a good note. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> I don't as know. As good as it could get. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really unfortunate that uh, Moen died before he was able to truly be exonerated. But mm-hmm. if we're being real, he shouldn't have been convicted in the first place. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. <sighs> well, if you're thinking of, of traveling to Norway this Easter, don't. <laughs> we're still, don't. We're still in COVID times, first of all. <laughs> yeah. Stay home. But why don't you uh, why don't you check out this podcast? Hello, this is Margot D of the Not Fade Away podcast. This is the show that talks about folks from the music world who are no longer with us. We're talking about singers, musicians, songwriters, composers. If they made a mark on the world of music, we will talk about them. Past and future episodes include Jim Morrison, Aaliyah, John Belushi, Kurt Cobain, Tupac, and Jerry Garcia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts under the name Not Fadeaway Podcast and follow us on all of our social media channels as well under Not Fadeaway Podcast. And if you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, send an email to notfadeawaypodcast at gmail.com. Hope you check us out. Thanks so much. All right, folks, that has been our Easter show. <laughs> Special Easter <laughs> episode? Yeah. 
We normally don't do an Easter episode because uh, we don't. But this is coming out on Easter, so <laughs> yeah, we don't really have a choice. <laughs> Did not realize we were going to have a release on Easter Sunday. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when time is relative. <laughs> when time is an illusion. Yes, big ol' illusion. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more just like this at badtastepodcast.com. There you can also find links to donate if you want to support the show or if you want, like, I don't know, a mug or a a pencil bag or (laughs) pencil mug, pencil mug. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We've got links to our, our merch store as well. If you enjoyed the show, you can leave us a, a positive review on, like, I don't know, wherever you listen to it. (laughs) iTunes. I don't know if you could do reviews on Google Play, but maybe. Take out a billboard, like whatever you feel. (laughs) Skywriting on a banner that you walk through your town. Giant magnet on the side of your car. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That would be fun to see in the wild. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Spray paint it on a road. Actually, don't do that. That's damaging. Mm -hmm. Damaging. uh, Do sidewalk truck spray paint. Yeah. Washes off. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That exists. Janelle, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got anything else? I mean, we don't know what's going to happen the rest of the year, so stay tuned, question mark. Oh, my Pandemic? God. Pandemic? <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen the rest of the week, let alone the rest, yeah. of the rest of the year. Yeah, I mean, we we had so many live shows that we were planning ahead of time, you know, ahead before all the pandemic times. And now everything is just, like, it's very stagnant. So we're just going to keep doing this. I know we applied for the Fringe Festival. Maybe that'll happen. We'll see. Yeah, that was fun last year. But, like, that's all we got, you know? We're just trucking. We're murder trucking. Just (laughs) trucking. Yeah. Uh, On that note, we'll we'll truck to the end and say Mm -hmm. our sound and editing is done by the lovely Tiff Fullman. Our music is done by the equally as lovely... Jason Zashevsky, the Enigma. <laughs> this has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will uh, see you in two weeks, probably. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Hard day, my Norwegian friends. <laughs> over this town.